hello everybody at MAFRA. Uh, good to be back with you again. Uh, continuing our series on the book of Isaiah. Uh, we're living in difficult times, or interesting times anyway. Um, and uh, look, if you think about it, think about the implications of of what we what we've been reading in Isaiah and what we're going to see today. There are you know there are there's overlap with with the conditions that we find ourselves in. We we find ourselves facing threats and great challenges and God's people back in those days and God's people today need to respond according to God's word. So let's pray and ask God that he'll help us as we grapple again with his word. Uh, loving Father, we know that you long to be uh, gracious, you desire to be merciful and so we, we're grateful that you are a gracious and a merciful God who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. So we pray that you would teach us more of yourself today from your word and reveal your son to us. Uh, so that we can be people who uh, live lives that um, please you. Uh, please help us to put our trust in you and never to despise your word, but to um, to come to it humbly and reverently and expectantly. So we pray that you would preach, you, you would teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our passage is Isaiah 33, continuing this series on Isaiah, but, uh, and, and I hope you've read Isaiah 33, uh, all of it, and the historical background to that passage, the essential historical background, is found in Second Kings. Uh, so Second Kings uh, 18, chapter 18, particularly from verse 9 onwards all the way through to the end of chapter 19. If you'd read those, then you'll, you'll get the historical context that Isaiah is addressing in Isaiah chapter 33. But what do you do when you're confronted with a problem? How do you go about solving it or how do you uh, respond or handle it? Uh, particularly if the problem involves a challenge to your conscience. How do you respond to a crisis? What, what's your method of going about facing up to a crisis? Uh, perhaps you've got a business opportunity. Perhaps there's a way of getting ahead in your business. But it might involve some shady practices, things that perhaps you'd be a little reluctant to admit to. But you might go thinking, you know, if I don't take it, someone else will, and it'll be to my disadvantage. What about the lengths you'll go to to keep your friends? Um, perhaps you've gone somewhere new or you just have friends that you want to maintain and it seems that the price of maintaining the friends or of winning your way into a new circle of friends is to be involved in attitudes or conversations that deep down you know aren't right but you think to yourself, well, I really do need friends. I don't want to be lonely, so I'm going to do whatever it takes to fit in. I'll, I'll talk that way the way they do. Uh, what about if you're in a job and there's a promotion and, or maybe you just want the boss's approval, but it depends on some dodgy dealings? You think to yourself, well, yeah, we could use the extra money. I really do need that promotion. How do you handle it? In the world of politics, people will talk about whatever it takes. It was quite a famous Australian political biography written some years ago that was called exactly that, whatever it takes. That was that well-known politician's take on what was required to survive and to succeed in, in politics. The whatever it takes attitude is otherwise called pragmatism. It means that you do whatever means are necessary to get to where you think you need to go, you'll take those. Uh, and even if that requires abandoning the demands of conscience or your morality, then so what? Sometimes churches resort, resort to politics uh, 
God's word tells us all we need to know about how to conduct the affairs of a church. And yet very many churches resort to politics, to political solutions, to problems. On a larger national scale, that's exactly the situation that Isaiah is confronting with, confronted with and, and that he's dealing with in these chapters that we've been looking at. This section that we're in at the moment, chapter 33, forms a part of a unit that runs from chapter 28 to 35. And the overriding theme is that it's a vain hope to put your trust in people, in men, in political processes. The background to it, as we've seen before, is that the Assyrians, the, the dominant world power in the ancient Near East, the part of the world that Israel was in, the Assyrians are on the march. They're expanding their territory. Israel's desire to keep itself safe has expressed itself in forming an allegiance with Egypt, a power who is fading. Uh, and Assyria is this growing threat, which is uh, coming very close to home. Now, why was Assyria a threat? Well, it's because the people had turned their back on God. Generations of covenant unfaithfulness have produced the crisis. God had promised he'd protect his people if only they did his word and, and obeyed his law. And so their unfaithfulness, their continuing neglect of Yahweh and his word uh, has led to their failure. And if they keep doing what they've always done, which is the very definition of insanity, uh, they're going to end up being judged. And so uh, last time I spoke to you on Isaiah chapter 30 and we saw that Egypt was no help. We saw that uh, what they were doing was refusing or despising Yahweh's word, which is a dangerous thing. Uh, he has Yahweh's promise to be gracious. But at the end of our reading, we, dis we discovered that uh, there were two courses of action. There were two results. If they took up Yahweh's gracious offer of forgiveness and salvation their destiny would be one of song. They'd be singing. That's a poetic way of saying they'll be rejoicing. But the other alternative was sulphur. They'd face the burning. They'd face conquest in battle. They'd face Yahweh's fiery judgment. Singing or sulphur was the consequence of their course of action. And so we concluded last time saying that the, the, the take-home message of chapter 30 was don't despise the word of God who waits to be gracious. Yahweh is a waiting God. He waits to be gracious and merciful. Well, Isaiah 33, I think we could say that the theme here is the, our God, the consuming fire. And the big question of this passage is posed right in the middle in, chapter, in verse 14. Uh, who can dwell with the consuming fire? Well, verse 1 of chapter 33, Are you destroyer who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed? When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. This is Assyria being denounced. Assyria is not named. And so there's a, well, we've already seen that Assyria forms the major threat to God's people at this point. But Assyria is not named here, which tends to make this denunciation general, as we'll see in a moment. Now, the context, as I said before, is 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. And at that time, Shalmaneser was the king of Assyria, and for three years he'd laid siege to Samaria. So Samaria was the capital of the northern part of Israel. After King Solomon's reign, Israel divided into the north and to the south. You had Judah in the south, you had Israel in the north. Israel's capital was Samaria, and Shalmaneser had laid siege to it for three years while King Hezekiah was on the throne in Jerusalem. Shalmaneser, the Assyrian king, had won, 
And so the people of Israel were deported out of the northern tribes. They were taken into Assyria, never to be heard of again. And we're told in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 12, that this was because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Uh, they transgressed his covenant. So, in other words, there's a threat there to Judah if they keep despising God's word, as it's clear they've been doing. Well, eight years after this, there's a new king in Assyria, Sennacherib by name, and we read about him in 2 Kings 18 from verse 13 and following. And he's come in to Judean territory and he's taken the cities which King Hezekiah had fortified. So they've built strong walls, they've put in good armies, but they've been no threat to the king of Assyria and he's taken these towns. He's conquered mighty Lachish, which was a big city and a well-fortified city, and it's only 30 kilometres from Jerusalem. Now, where's 30 kilometres from Mafra? Imagine if one of your greatest enemies had captured Sail and you were sitting in Mafra thinking, is he coming for us, knowing that he is? That was the situation that these people were in. They were under threat. It was imminent. It was, it was on their doorstep. But more than that, they did. the Assyrian forces did get all the way to the walls of Jerusalem. And so 2 Kings 18 from verse 14 and uh, so on, uh, we find there that uh, the king of Assyria sends to King Hezekiah. Hezekiah says, look, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to antagonise you. Can I give you something? And so he goes in and takes things from the temple treasury, the silver and the gold. He bribes the king of Assyria, just saying, please leave us alone. Go away. But the king of Assyria turns back on that deal and he does pursue a military engagement. And so he sends a, a, a party of his highest ranking officials and they are outside of the wall of Jerusalem, but they're taunting the people inside. And the people are looking down from the battlements of Jerusalem while these Assyrian dignitaries are taunting them, saying, we'll give you the horses to fight on if you can even find enough men brave enough to ride out against us. In uh, chapter 18, 2 Kings 18, verse 24, these dignitaries say, How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? So Egypt was no threat to the Assyrians. And then down to chapter, chapter 18, verse 32, 2 Kings 18, verse 32, these dignitaries say, Don't listen to Hezekiah. He's misleading you when he says, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his, his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? In other words, what they're saying is our gods are greater than all the other gods and they will help us beat you. Well, it's at this point in chapter 19 of Second Kings that Isaiah, the prophet whose work we're reading now, he comes to reassure King Hezekiah. And so Hezekiah reassured praise. He realises that the problem is spiritual. The solution is not a pragmatic one. The solution is a spiritual one. And so as chapter 19, verse 1, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. So he's taken the means of expressing his sorrow visibly and he goes into the temple to seek Yahweh and pray. And he prays in 19, verse 16, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So, O now, now O Lord, our God, save us. 
pleas from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. So Hezekiah realises that their sin has got them into this. They need to repent and they need to urgently seek Yahweh's intervention. Well, just as Isaiah prophesied, so we're crisscrossing now between Isaiah 33 and back to 2 Kings, but Isaiah has says the destroyer will be destroyed, the um, uh, this one who's opposed Yahweh's people will in fact uh, come undone. And so we read in Second Kings 19 about a miraculous turnaround. This massive Assyrian army which has come to the very gates of Jerusalem. Imagine that. How would you feel if everything you've known is currently at risk of being overtaken by the most savage army that you have heard of or could even imagine? And they're there right at the gates. Well, 2 Kings 19 verse 35 says, That night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. That's two whole grand final crowds in years when we're allowed to have a grand final. Uh, At the gates, armed to the teeth, having already beaten all comers. But that night the angel of the Lord went and struck them down. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all the dead, there were all the dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech, and Shereza, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esharadon, his son, reigned in his place. Kings rise, kings fall. They might look strong. They might even taunt the god of all the world, of all the universe, but they will not survive when they take him on, not for long. And so Sennacherib went home and even his own sons took him down. So in verse 1 of our chapter, chapter 33, back to Isaiah 33, Assyria's status, says God, through his prophet is temporary. Its successes are limited and its judgment is certain. And against that backdrop, Yahweh's people are asked to say, Yahweh is in charge, not the gods of Assyria. They might have success, but it's only success that Yahweh allows and only then because he's disciplining his people because they've turned their backs on him. So in verse 2, Isaiah 33, verse 2, there's a prayer. Uh, And the prayer is, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. It's a plea from the remnant who have remained faithful to Yahweh that, that God would be true to his character. Now remember that God's promised, back in chapter 30, verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. So they say, Yahweh, be gracious to us. They know he's gracious. They know he's merciful. They ask him to be what he's promised to be. They're praying to him on the basis of his word and his revealed character. So these people get it. They understand Yahweh. They're taking him at his word. They also understand that without his gracious intervention, they're doomed. They realise that the whatever-it-takes pragmatic political approach has never worked in the past and it will not work in the future. So they give in and they pray. They express active faith in Yahweh. Their prayer is that, that Yahweh would protect them in the morning. The morning was the time that a military attack was likely. Be our arm, the arm of strength. Be our salvation in the time of trouble. Only Yahweh can save. Well, the the prayer continues in verse 3, and and it continues with a word of praise. 
when Yahweh is exalted, when Yahweh is given his due, that's when his people enjoy stability. And so verse 3 says, At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts sleep, it is leapt upon. It's a scene of a battle victory, such as they saw when the people were struck dead. Jerusalem's inhabitants would have gone out and would have plundered the dead. They would have taken what was precious from the the dead bodies that were left there. And it's an acknowledgement that this was Yahweh's doing. And so they praise. And they declare in in verse 5 that uh, the, the Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. So the fact that Yahweh is exalted is a way of saying he lives on high. He, he lives in heaven. He lives way beyond the reach of mortals like you and me. And to, to speak of the fear of Yahweh, which is Zion's treasure. Well, Derek Kidner in his commentary on these verses says that fear is that relationship between the heavenly master and the earthly servant. What's being described here is the ideal Zion, Yahweh living among his people. Zion is the mountain on which Jerusalem was built. The temple was on the top of Mount Zion. It's a picture of God living among his people. The ideal Zion is when Yahweh is reverenced. And when Yahweh is reverenced, his people derive the benefit. It just works out well when you give Yahweh his due place. Proper regard for Yahweh leads to stability in verse 6. Remember, their situation was anything but stable because they had the Assyrians, this terrifying army, at the very gates. But the solution to the military threat is not raising a bigger army. It's repenting and turning to God and then living according to his word. And Yahweh, in verse 6, will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. What's your treasure? You see, the thing is we can think back to those examples that I had before of of wanting friends, of wanting promotion, of wanting success. We might treasure all those things and we might do whatever it takes to get them. But the fear of the Lord, that understanding that he's our master and we're his servants, when we live with that relationship, then we'll discover what treasure really is. And then, in the midst of whatever turbulence is happening in our world around us, then we'll understand what stability and security are. Because Yahweh will be the stability for our times as he was for those times. Now, our context is different because we're not a nation that's under the... The covenant of God. We're not, we're not Israel in the sense that Israel was under the terms of the old covenant. We're new covenant people living in a world that doesn't acknowledge God as its true king. And so we're in this world, says Jesus. We're not of the world. We're citizens of the new Jerusalem, of the Zion which is to come. And we're living now by the values of the coming Jerusalem uh, while we're surrounded by Babylon, while we're surrounded by worldly forces. But there's a principle here which applies as much today as it ever did back then. So the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. 
Yahweh, God, will be the stability of our times. What does Jesus say? Well, the night before he went to the cross, the night before he was about to say goodbye in a physical sense to his disciples where they would be left to see their leader executed horrifically, in John 14 we read that Jesus says to them, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. There is a spiritual peace which becomes ours when we express our fear of God, our reverence for him, by saying, God, you are the master, I am the servant. I come to you by faith. I come to you in repentance, confessing that I cannot do anything to please you on my own. I need you to forgive me. When, when we come to God by faith in that way, then that peace, which Paul later on in Philippians calls the peace that passes all understanding, it will come and be our portion and it will be our stability. It will remove anxiety from us. Peace I leave with you, says Jesus. Peace in the midst of conflict. Peace that is ours while we wait for all conflict to be put aside when the new Jerusalem inhabits the whole earth. And so down to verse 7, and we find there that the destroyer's destruction will be complete. And when the destroyer is destroyed, when human pride is humbled, then Yahweh will be properly exalted. And so what we find there is a lament. It's a lament song for the destruction that follows a battle. The trouble with war is that it causes more troubles than it fixes. Uh, Whenever there's war, there's massive destruction that takes place and there's all sorts of reconstruction that needs to, to follow. And so we find in verses 7 and 8 there, 7, 8 and 9, uh, a picture of, of the destruction that follows a battle. Um, highways lie waste, travellers have ceased, covenants are broken, cities are despised, a land mourns and languishes and so on. It's a picture of terrible destruction. But then in verse 10, now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. Three times now. When? Well, this must be in response to the prayer of verse 2. The prayer of verse 2 that says, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Well, the waiting's over. Now, says Yahweh, I will act. In verse 11 and 12, we get a stunning picture of what it looks like when humans rely on their own ingenuity. So the king of Assyria came with all the battle machinery of, of the ancient world and he was pretty good at killing things and, and conquering people and yet it came to nothing because he was relying not on the God of the universe but on his own human ingenuity and gods that don't exist. But Yahweh pronounces judgment on that in verse 11. You conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble, your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. What's chaff? What's stubble? It's what's left after the harvest. You can't eat it. It's only good for burning. It's fruitless. Yahweh says all of this unaided human activity, human activity which is outside the scope of his instruction and his blessing, all that sort of human activity is fruitless. It'll produce nothing except what's fit to be burned. So Yahweh makes an appeal. 
In verse 13, he says, Hear you who are far off, what have I done? What I have done? And you who are near, acknowledge my might. That means get real. Remember that Yahweh's in charge, he's in control. There is no human army that can withstand even a moment against Yahweh when he moves to action. And so this is an appeal for people to exalt Yahweh properly, to acknowledge joyfully that he is the king who is in supreme control. He will be acknowledged joyfully by his people and regretfully by those he judges. But an acknowledgement of Yahweh in his deeds and for his might, that's what fearing Yahweh means. It means saying, God, this is who you are. And I quit my rebellion. I quit my despising of your word. You're strong and I'm not. Have your way with me. That's a, a picture of the fear of Yahweh. Hear you who are far off what I have done and you who are near acknowledge my might. When we acknowledge the might of Yahweh, God, that's the beginning of fear. Well, verses 14 to 16, as I said, they're the heart of the passage and they contain the big question. And so we read there, verse 14, The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? So this acknowledgement of Yahweh's might, they've seen, they've heard of what Yahweh can do. And it has a sobering effect on them. Now, if you think about it, they've got good reason to be fearful because they've treated Yahweh with contempt. They've despised his word. They've turned their back on it. They've gone the way of the gods of the other nations. They've sought military alliances with other nations. All these things that Yahweh has warned them about. So they've got very good reason to be fearful of one who is called here the consuming fire, the everlasting burnings. Now, Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 9 speak of God as being a consuming fire. Remember what happens to stubble? What happens to, um, to straw? It's burnt. Yahweh is a consuming fire. It's an image of, of what will happen to all who persist in their opposition of him. But how did all this come about? How did the Assyrian threat even materialise? It's only because they've disobeyed their God. Yahweh's people had forgotten him. They despised his word and they'd looked elsewhere for help. So the big question is, who can live safely with Yahweh? Well, you don't have to wait long for the answer. It's in verse 15. These are the people that can live with Yahweh, the people who walk righteously. That means that they've got a lifestyle which is characterised by right living. They walk in the straight line. They don't transgress and leave the path. These people speak uprightly, so they won't lie. They won't slander. They won't curse or blaspheme. They're people who despise the gain of oppression. So in other words, when it comes to making their money, they're not going to do whatever it takes. Even their desire to support themselves monetarily will be constrained by what's right and what's true. The person who can live with the everlasting burnings is one who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe. In other words, they're not going to have anything to do with ill-gotten gains, with with, with money which has got um, through anything less than moral means. It means these are the sort of people who won't cheat on their tax. They won't take financial advantage through deception 
anything other than an honest way of life, they're going to turn their back on. They're going to shake their hands lest it holds money that, that they got illicitly. These are people who stop their ears from hearing of bloodshed. They want no association with works of violence. And they shut their eyes from looking on evil. In other words, they'll turn a blind eye rather than let their, their visual faculties be polluted by things that might cause them to stray. Now that person says, verse 16, will dwell on the heights. How are you feeling at the moment? Do you pass the test? Because I look at that list and I think, no, I don't. And that's the point. On our own, we won't pass that test. But the person who does pass the test will dwell on the heights. His place of defence will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. In other words, there'll be no lack for this person. They'll be secure. Remember Yahweh will be the stability for your times? That's a picture of stability. Dwelling on the heights, way up high on a rock where foreign armies can't get to you, uh, where your food will be provided. So who's this for? What's the person who's pure in heart? That's what Psalm 24 says. Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 have similar lists asking who can live with Yahweh. Well, who's the equal to that? We'll get back to that. So verses 17 to 22. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches far. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he? Who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You'll see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. That's a direct uh, statement against the, the Assyrian threat. Remember that they, the, the Assyrian king sent representatives to taunt the people in Jerusalem. While they were there, they were sussing it out. They were counting the number of towers. They were working out how big the walls and the fortifications were. They were planning their next military conquest. Those people will be forgotten, says Yahweh. You will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? So that will be in the past. That will be forgotten. It will be replaced by a vision of the king. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. Now, who's the king? Is it Yahweh or is it his Messiah, his anointed? Well, later on, we, we read that Yahweh is the king. It, 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 well, whatever it is, it's a good thing. You will see means that they're going to experience the benefit of a truly good king. And so verse 20, Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor any of its cords will be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, and the Lord is our king. He will save us. So remember, Yahweh waits to be gracious. He longs to be merciful. Only Yahweh is the one who can save his people, and only when they turn from their rebellion in repentance and walk by faith in fear of him. So that's a picture of stability. As opposed to the battle destruction that we've seen before where the, the, the land lies waste, this is a, a picture of a country beautifully restored, of, of a land in which it's possible to live stably. Now, when it says there that 
the Lord will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams. That's attributing to Yahweh this this idea of peace and security and personifying the rivers and streams. Now, there was no big river in Jerusalem. Uh, There was no stream there at all. There was the Kidron, which was a tiny little creek, really. Uh, Even the River Jordan to the uh, the eastern boundary of, of Israel was was pretty small by comparison with the other nations' rivers. But the big rivers of that world, the Nile that ran through Egypt or the, the Tigris that ran through um, Nineveh or the Euphrates on which Babylon was built, they were massive rivers. But inasmuch as they were the source of the wealth of these nations, they were also a source of a threat because they were large enough that a foreign army could navigate their way up them. But the future that's pictured here, the future that comes from Yahweh's salvation, is a future so stable that they'll have the blessing of wonderful rivers, which are a symbol of wealth and prosperity and and, uh, of all the good things that can be grown on the river shore. It'll be a symbol of that. But as well as that, Yahweh will be for them the protective shield that means that no opposition will be able to make their way up there. Again, it's a picture of that longed-for stability These are words which are spoken to people who have just been frightened to the core by the threat of the Assyrians, and Yahweh's saying, obey me and the future will be secure. So verses 23 to 24 tie the whole passage together with a two-part challenge. It's a vision of two realities, the present and the future. Verse 23, your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. That's a reminder that they don't have what it takes in themselves. The idea of responding to the situations of life, the challenges that face us, the crises that face us, in our own strength, the pragmatic whatever-it-takes solution, you haven't got what it takes Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. It's an image of a ship lost at sea without a mast, without a sail, at the whim of the tides and the winds. I knew a fellow once who cooked on a ship uh, that made its way around Australia doing trading, um, did a lot of work in Bass Strait, and he recounted to me how at one stage, at one time, they lost the, the engine of the ship. And so for 18 hours is the time that it took to get engineers out from the mainland on helicopters to, uh, to, to fix the, 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 ship, the ship's engine. For 18 hours they drifted. I said, what was it like? He said, it was terrifying because they were at the mercy of the tides. They were at the mercy of the currents. And there's lots of islands and hazardous bits in Bass Strait. This is a picture of, of risk. It's anything but stable. Your cords hang loose. There's nothing to hold the mast up. That's us if we think we can fix the problem of who can live with the everlasting burning on our own. If we think that we've got what it takes to walk righteously, speak uprightly, despise the gain, if we we think we can do that unaided, we're kidding ourselves. And yet that's what it takes to live safely with Yahweh. But then there's a glorious future that's portrayed at the end of verse 23 and into verse 24. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey and no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. So 
the present reality is this ship without a rudder, this group of people who can't do what it takes. The future is an image of, of being able to strip the, the conquered foe and, and take all their good gear from them and divide it. Even the lame will be able to take the prey. But notice here in verse 24, no inhabitant will say, I'm sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Now, all the way back in Isaiah chapter 1, it was the sickness that couldn't be cured. The, the rebellious people of Isaiah chapter 1 were people who was, whose sickness couldn't be cured. Who, uh, they were people laden with iniquity in Isaiah chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. But now the situation that we saw introduced in Isaiah 1 has been completely reversed. The iniquity has been taken away. The sickness has been cured. How can that be? Well, the God who waits to be gracious is going to reverse the fortunes of those who quit with their self-sufficiency, their pragmatic, whatever-it-takes uh, approach to life. How will he remove the iniquity? It doesn't tell us here. But later in the book of Isaiah, we're told it quite clearly. And here's the answer to how can we live with a God who is a consuming fire. Later on in Isaiah, we find that Yahweh is going to send a servant. And in Isaiah 53, verse 6, a very famous verse, we read there, all we like sheep have gone astray. That's another way of saying we're people whose mask doesn't hold up. We're like sheep that have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This coming servant, who it turns out is the messianic king, is going to pay the price of our salvation with his blood. And by that, the iniquity of people will be turned away. It will be put aside. We haven't got what it takes on our own. We can't adopt the whatever-it-takes pragmatic approach to life, making our own alliances, coming up with our own solutions to the problems that confront us. We're all like ships without rudders. We don't walk, up, we don't walk righteously. We don't speak uprightly. We quite often find it easy to resort to whatever it takes to, to get the money that we need. Sometimes we quite enjoy hearing uh, talk that's no good for us. Sometimes we'll even involve ourselves in that because everybody else does it. We don't have what it takes on our own to live with a God who's a consuming fire. And that idea of God being the consuming fire is taken up in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, we're told it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So if you do adopt that approach to life that says, I'll do it my way, you've made a terrible, fateful decision. It's the decision that brought the Assyrians to the very gates and which later rebellion in Jerusalem caused the Babylonians to come and conquer them because the repentance that Hezekiah offered up was only short-lived, unfortunately. But the God who waits to be gracious and merciful will not be despised forever because he's a powerful, strong and a mighty God and fearing him is the key to treasure. It's the key to stability. And so Hebrews 12 verses 28 to 29 show us what happens when we put our trust in the one who with his blood has taken the iniquity of us all. When we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, it should lead us to be grateful when we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, accepting that his death on our behalf means that his righteousness 
has become our righteousness. It's only then that we're safe to live with a God who is the uh, consuming fire. Only then can we live on Zion, God's holy hill. And so Hebrews 12 verses 28 to 29 say this, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God waits to be gracious, he longs to be merciful, but he will not be despised. We need to put our trust in the Lord Jesus, the servant of Yahweh, and allow him to make us fit to live with the God who is the consuming fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be sobered by these words. Uh, Help us to, to read in them and to understand that you are a God who is perfect through and through. You are righteous and altogether just. And you hate sin. But in your mercy, Heavenly Father, in your gracious and faithful love, we know that you don't treat us as our sins deserve, but for the sake of your Son, the servant spoken of in Isaiah, we know that his death, his blood, has put aside our iniquity when we come to him in faith. So please help us to to live according to faith in you. Help us to find our stability in you. Help us to find our deepest joys in you. Uh, Help us to quit from that pragmatic whatever-it-takes way of life of thinking we can fix our own problems and instead turn for solutions to all the crises that we face, to your word and to to the promises that we find there. Father, we ask that you would do that work in us by your Holy Spirit to, uh, to continue to refine us, to make us more like Jesus, to make us people whose, whose speech and whose acts and whose even our thoughts are pleasing to you. So we pray that you would help us to this end and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.